the headlines tonight. Clinton swears no tongues in cheek during Congress. India celebrates Republication Day, becomes independent of England. And riots rock Ananarivo after bread shortage as President Ravalomanana hits the road. Plus, coming up, an exclusive interview with the five guys from 98 Degrees and what they really think about Mandy Moore. You heard it here first. Laugh along at home, they can't hear you. Those are the headlines. This is the news. News bang. A shot of reality in the arm of the people. Le Tasty, uh, 1998. Tonight, a bombshell from the Oval Office. President Bill Clinton has denied having sexual relations with intern Monica Lewinsky. In an explosive press conference, Clinton wagged his finger at reporters and said, I did not have untoward trousers downs with that woman. But as we now know, he was fibbing like a rug-covered cat. The sordid, 18-month affair between the leader of the free world and his starstruck underling rocked Washington to its very marble foundations. Details emerged of Oval Office antics more frenzied than a White House correspondent's dinner after party. There were allegations of stained dresses, missing cigars, and later on, much to everyone's surprise, even more stains. Clinton faced impeachment by the US House of Representatives, but survived thanks to clever legal manoeuvring and distracting them with shiny things. Mm -hmm. 1950. In 1950, India was finally free from British rule and the sun had set on their empire, not that they noticed due to smog. Rajendra Prasad became the first president of India, a country with more people than a Doctor Who convention. Jawaharlal Nehru took charge as prime minister, promising the whole subcontinent will be wired for electricity by next Diwali. Their new constitution, proposed by M.N. Roy, who won it in a tombola, was longer than war and peace, without the Tolstoy story value. Meanwhile, Nehru preached democracy like he'd invented it himself. One man, one vote, he said, unless you're related to me. He also promoted secularism, but only because his trousers were too tight. Science, however, welcomed him with open test tubes. After all, he authored several books, including Gravity, A Brief Slog, and On the Origin of Species, Besides Our Border. 2009. Rioting has broken out in the normally peaceful capital of Madagascar and Tanapupu. The chaos erupted after President Mark Raven Madman was overthrown by his arch-rival and local mayor, Handy Manwarivo. Eyewitnesses say it all kicked off when Raven Madman tried to increase tax on that most precious of Malagasy commodities, lemurs. I saw it with my own eyes, said one man we'll call Jean for legal reasons. The people were furious. They started chucking ring-tailed monkeys at each other before looting the nearest jewellery and bicycle shops. The coup d'etat marks a significant change in power for the small island nation known as much for its indigenous wildlife as its corrupt politicians. Jean continued, Handy Manuarivo is no better than the last guy. I mean, he looks like a bloody Lego figure come to life. It remains to be seen if order will ever be restored to this once great city or if they'll just end up playing with trains instead. News bang, unleashing the furies of fact. Presenting Shakanaka Giles with your meteorological forecast. 
a wintry welcome to tomorrow's weather, my dear shivering souls. Starting in the southeast, it'll be a frosty affair, as if Jack Frost has spent the night painting every surface with his icy brush. The sun will make a timid appearance, but don't be fooled. It's as shy as a cat on a hot tin roof. Moving westward, Wales will experience rainfall like the tears of a melancholic bard. A gentle breeze will accompany the showers, so take care not to lose your kites to the sky. The north is expecting snowfall, just enough to turn your morning commute into a festive winter wonderland. Wrap up warm and don't forget your woolly hat. And finally, in London town, the fog will roll in thicker than a cream tea at high tea time. Keep those umbrellas handy and watch your step on those cobblestone streets. In summary then, frosty fingers, dampened kites and snow-kissed mornings. Stay warm and dry and that's all the weather. Uh, 1991. The year is 1991, and Somalia is plunged into chaos. The Spark? A rebellion led by Mohamed Farah Aidid and the United Somali Congress, which overthrew President Siad Bari. But let's rewind to 1978, when Bari's special forces clashed with dissident groups, sowing the seeds of strife. Aidid, a formidable Somali general, emerged as a key figure in the rebellion that eventually splintered into smaller factions. Bara's rule, which began in 1969, crumbled under the weight of his own tyranny. And now for an update on this ongoing conflict, we turn to our reporter Brian Bastable. This is the heart of darkness. The blackest hole in a country full of black holes. The very pit of despair. As I emerge from my bunker this morning, bullet casings litter the ground like autumn leaves on an American campus in fall. And that sound you hear? It's the clanking and crashing of armored vehicles lurching through what was once a town, but now resembles nothing more than twisted metal, concrete dust, and the occasional lone chicken scratching around for scraps to eat. But today there is hope amidst all this horror as two great leaders meet to discuss their differences over lunch at a fine restaurant. Though it's worth noting they won't be dining on any chickens. On one side sits General Mohammed Farah Aidid, looking every inch the warlord with his rugged good looks and muscular arms that could crush your skull like an eggshell if he so desired. On the other side sits President Siad Bari, dressed impeccably in his military uniform adorned with medals signifying countless victories against those who dared oppose him. And what do these men talk about over their sumptuous meal? Not politics or power struggles, but rather their shared love of poetry and artistry. Something many might find surprising given their reputations as ruthless dictators willing to kill anyone who stands in their way. Yet here they are now, laughing together like old friends while outside their safe haven chaos reigns supreme. Will this meeting bring peace to this troubled land? Only time will tell. Brian Bastable, Newsbang. Undertum, 2009.
Antananarivo, the Malagasy capital and epicenter of political power, has been thrust into chaos. Rioting engulfed the city in 2009, culminating in the ousting of President Mark Ravalomanana. The crisis erupted when Andri Rajwilina, then mayor of Antananarivo, led an opposition movement against Ravalomanana's administration. A prominent figure in Malagasy politics and business, Ravalomanana served as president from 2002 until his downfall in 2009. As Antanana Rivo reels from the aftermath of these dramatic developments, we turn to Ken Shit for further insights. Good evening, degenerates. As we delve into the bowels of history, let's take a moment to remember the year 2009, when the good people of Antanana Rivo, Madagascar, decided they'd had enough of President Mark Ravalomanana's bullshit. Antananarivo, the capital and largest city of Madagascar, is a place of high elevation and even higher tensions. It's home to the country's government institutions, diplomatic missions and various businesses, all of which were thrown into chaos by the political crisis that erupted in 2009. The opposition movement was led by Antananarivo mayor, Andri Rajuelina, a man who knew how to stir up trouble. Ravalomanana, a prominent politician and businessman, served as the president of Madagascar from 2002 to 2009, but his reign of terror came to an abrupt end when the people of Antananarivo rose up against him. The rioting was fierce, with protesters taking to the streets in their thousands to demand Ravalomanana's removal. They were sick and tired of his corrupt regime, his heavy-handed tactics, and his complete disregard for the welfare of the Madagascan people. And so, after weeks of unrest, Ravalomanana was finally forced to step down. He slithered away into the shadows, leaving behind a country in turmoil and a power vacuum that would be filled by Rajwalina. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that when the people rise up, even the mightiest tyrants can be brought to their knees. You taste tea, uh, 1998. In a story that has gripped the United States, President Bill Clinton refutes allegations of sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. The ensuing scandal, a veritable soap opera of intrigue and passion, saw the president embroiled in an 18-month affair with Ms. Lewinsky. The fallout, impeachment by the House of Representatives and an acquittal in the Senate. As for Ms. Lewinsky, she found herself thrust into the global spotlight, her name forever etched in the annals of political history. And now, to delve deeper into this tale of power and passion, we turn to our correspondent Hardiman Pesto. Martin, I'm here in the Oval Office with President Bill Clinton, who is addressing the nation about allegations of an improper relationship. Mr. President, did you have sexual relations with that woman, Monica Lewinsky? Cut the crap, Pesto. The man blatantly lied to the entire nation. He looked into the camera and said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. But we all know he did. Yes, but the president says it depends on what your definition of is is. Oh, come on. Does he think we're all idiots? This isn't about semantics. He abused his power and took advantage of an intern. Then he lied about it repeatedly. But the economy is booming, Martin. As my guest Sir Reginald McNugget III says, it's the economy, stupid. I don't care if the budget is balanced and we've achieved world peace. He lied under oath. These are serious felonies we're talking about. Yes, but according to constitutional scholar Professor Flapjack, impeachment requires a high crime or misdemeanor. 
Is this really enough to remove a president? You bet your ass it is. He made a mockery of the institution of the presidency. He has no integrity left. And what's with all these bogus guests and so-called experts? I want to hear Clinton take some real responsibility. The president admits he made a mistake, but doesn't think he should be impeached over it. Most Americans agree. His approval ratings are higher than ever. Of course, his supporters are still backing him. But the fact is, he lied. Repeatedly and shamelessly. He has abused his power and obstructed justice. The man has got to go. Well, the Senate may disagree with you there, Martin. It looks like he'll be acquitted and allowed to serve out his term. What a farce. The failure to remove this liar from office is a sad day for truth and justice in America. I guess we can kiss accountability goodbye. Up next, how to talk to your kids about presidential affairs. News Bang. Unveiling the truth one fact at a time. Penelope Wanchime, our environment correspondent, revisits the Cascadia earthquake of 1700 an event that showcased Mother Nature's capacity to shuffle her geological furniture. Good evening, I'm Penelope Windchime, and let me take you back to the year 1700, when Mother Earth decided to shake off her fleas with a mighty twitch. The Cascadia earthquake, with a magnitude so grand it could tickle the belly of the moon, did a jolly dance along the Pacific Northwest. This tectonic tantrum involved the Juan de Fuca plate throwing a fit beneath our feet, causing a fault rupture that stretched longer than the queue at Madame Tussauds on a sunny day. The moment magnitude scale, which measures earthquakes much like one measures the loudness of an opera singer's high C, clocked this earthy bellow between 8.7 and 9.2, a truly impressive performance. The Pacific Northwest, home to more trees than you can shake a stick at, includes Oregon, Washington, Idaho and British Columbia. They all got front row seats to this geological gala. What's an earthquake without the after-party? Tsunamis followed suit as if summoned by Neptune himself, caused by water being displaced in such volumes it could fill every teacup in England. Oh yes, dear listeners, when Mother Nature decides to rearrange her furniture, we're just along for the ride. I'm Penelope Winchime, and remember, even when the ground shakes, keep your roots firm. D. 1949 Calamity Prenderville now unravels the tale of a monumental invention that propelled us to the stars. The Hale Telescope at Palomar Observatory. Today, we're going to talk about a British innovation that changed the stars. Literally, the year was 1949, and we weren't just inventing fish and chips or the spitting image puppets. No, no, we were also building the largest optical telescope in the world. That's right, folks. We're talking about the Hale Telescope at Palomar Observatory in California. Now, I know what you're thinking. Calamity, how did, um, uh, how did a British invention end up in America? Well, let me tell you, it's all thanks to our cunning plan to take over the world. I mean, share our knowledge with our American friends. The Hale Telescope was a marvel of technology for its time. With a whopping 200-inch mirror, that's nearly 5 metres for you youngsters, it was the largest aperture optical telescope in the world for 28 years. And let me tell you, 
It wasn't just big, it was also smart. It pioneered new technologies in telescope design and fabrication. But what does first light mean? Well, it's not when the telescope turns on and says, good morning. No, no. It's when the telescope takes its first astronomical image after construction. And let me tell you, folks, that first image was as clear as a cup of tea on a foggy London day. So, there you have it. Just when you thought British innovation couldn't get any better, we went and invented the stars. Or at least gave America the tools to do so. So next time you look up at the night sky and see a twinkling star, remember, it's all thanks to British ingenuity. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go and invent something equally ridiculous like a self-drying coat or an edible umbrella. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Newsbang, the only news source that doesn't need a teleprompter. Newsbang, a light in the darkness of misinformation. Say, 1545. Today we venture back to 1545 where the Council of Trent convened. This watershed event in the annals of Christendom sought to address the religious upheaval wrought by the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church, a cornerstone of Western civilization and home to 1.3 billion baptized souls, faced a crisis of authority. In response, the Council endeavoured to reform and reaffirm its doctrines. Meanwhile, Protestantism emerged from this turmoil, seeking to rectify perceived errors within the Catholic Church. And now, joining us from Vatican City is our correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. Your humble pastor, Kevin, here, reporting live from the Newsbank studio in Vatican City. Now, the producer just slipped me a note about some church council back in 1545. The Council of Trent, was it? Had something to do with the Catholic Church trying to get its robes in a knot over those rapscallion Protestants and their reformist antics. As if one interpretation of the good book wasn't enough. Leave it to the clergy to take a simple message of love and community and turn it into grounds for bickering. <laughs> Reminds me of a similar kerfuffle we had at my old parish, St Hilda's Church of the Perpetually Perplexed. The young new pastor, Father Feldspar McGillicuddy, had a bee in his beretta about modernising the Mass. Said we needed to get with the times and stop mumbling in Latin. Well, you'd have thought, he suggested, adding a strobe light and fog machine up there by the pulpit, the way the parishioners grumbled. <laughs> it didn't help that Father Feldspar wanted to replace the pipe organ with an electric guitar. Praise music is the future, he'd declare. This being England, the closest thing we had to praise music was whenever old Mrs Chumley hit the wrong note during hymns. Now I myself thought some of Feldspar's ideas weren't half bad, but try telling that to the blue-haired brigade in the front pews. <laughs> well, the day finally came when Father F was going to debut his new modern mass. The church was packed, partly out of curiosity, partly out of protest. But when the time came, Father Feldspar was nowhere to be found. We waited and waited, hymnals poised for battle, but no sign of the young priest. <laughs> Just as the bishop was about to cancel the whole affair, we heard a faint cry coming from the direction of the confessional. Rushing over, we discovered poor Father Feldspar locked inside the booth. 
Turns out, some of the more traditional ladies had barricaded him in there while setting up for service. It's for your own good, they insisted. <laughs> well, after that, the bishop put the kibosh on any more attempts at modernization. Father Feldspar reluctantly went back to the Latin mass, electric guitar dreams dashed, and the ladies made sure to keep a close eye on him whenever he got near the confessional after that. <laughs> I suppose the moral is you can't rush sweeping change on folks, especially when tea and biscuits are at stake. Progress comes slowly in drips and drabs, much like Mrs Chumley's playing. On that note, I wish you a blessed evening. Toodle pip. <laughs> And it's time for our final headline, look at tomorrow's newspapers. The Times. Arab Spring. Kicks off with Yemeni revolution. There's a photo there of some people walking slowly towards something. The Express go with ladies and gentlemen, the University of Georgia. And finally, the Independent. Russian sailors see land in the South Pole. And remember folks, there's a squirrel on my lap but you can't have it. Good night from us all here at Newsbang and I trust you all to behave yourselves tomorrow and not eat each other alive. Goodbye for now. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.